Okay, so welcome to this um, summary of our study of Galatians chapter six. We've been studying Galatians chapter five for the past five weeks. And the main theme for Paul has been maintaining true Christian freedom. And in chapter five, we saw that Paul's advice and the advice of Jesus to the ones who have been set free by the message of the gospel is stand fast, stand firm in your liberty, don't become entangled with the yoke of bondage, with the yoke of religion, and don't allow yourself to abuse that freedom um, by walking in, in lasciviousness or lawlessness. But stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made you free. And in chapter 6, we begin to see what the fruits of that freedom that we have in Christ are. So, um, Kweku, you're going to help me read um, Galatians chapter 6. Verse 1 to verse 5. Brethren, if, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one, one another's burden, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone, not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. Okay. Thank you. Quickly. So verse 1 says, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. This is an important beginning to this chapter 6, because in chapter 5, like we said earlier, Paul has made clear that the gospel of Christ has made us free. We are, we are free from the demands of the law. And we don't have to keep any ordinances, whether it be Sabbath or washings of feet or anything that is external in order for us to have a right standing before God. And the sacrifice of Christ is more than sufficient to, uh, to present us holy and blameless before the throne of God. And then he went on in chapter 5 to warn us um, about the possibility that we might let this freedom go by slipping into some kind of lawlessness you know okay christ has set me free um, i might as well just do what i want with my freedom right and the counsel he gave to us is walk in the spirit walk in the spirit you know um, before you came into christ you had so many ways of achieving your objectives you have you had your own ideas of how to deal with difficult people difficult situations and you see the fact that you came into christ does not mean that those difficult people and those tricky relationships that you have to navigate it doesn't mean that they go away. Um, and when we when we come face to face with the same situations that we faced before we came to know Christ, there is the tendency for us to begin to use the same old tools of the flesh. You know, if you're the kind of person, for example, that used to use your anger to get things done or to get things or to make things happen, there's a tendency that you want to hold on to that tool as a means of manipulating people. And making things happen for you and it can be difficult actually because sometimes you know in the christian life it feels like 
you are always letting go of your rights and you are appearing weaker than you actually are in certain situations. But the counsel of Jesus through Paul in chapter 5 was walking the spirit. But when you don't know what to do, how to react, walk in the spirit. And one of the things we, we pointed out in walking in the spirit is that it is a walk. And if you've seen a child learning how to walk, there is a lot of stumbling involved in walking. In fact, even for us as adults, when we walk normally, there are times that we stumble, perhaps because something was placed on our path. Our attention was not as, as um, sharp as it should have been. We missed something and then we stumbled. It's as though some kind of stumbling, although of different levels of severity, is a part of the life of anyone who makes a deliberate decision to walk in the spirit. The ones who never stumble are the ones who don't decide to walk in the spirit. But, they, but anyone who decides to walk will find initially and along the journey that they are points of stumbling. And the, and the kind of believer that Paul is speaking of in verse 1 of chapter 6 is the type of believer that is not just stumbling, but has been overtaken by a particular sin. Meaning that it's not just a mistake. It's not just a misstep. He, has, he or she has arrived at the point where this particular flaw or where this particular weakness has overtaken them, meaning it has overtaken their will. They are, they are trapped in it. Perhaps they can't even identify it. They've become deceived by it. And he says the people who are supposed to restore such a believer are those who are spiritual, right? And you may ask, who, who is spiritual? Um, very clearly, this letter was, was written to the whole church, right? Not to the pastors or the bishops of the church. So Paul expects that those who are spiritual, right, are the members of the church, are part of the membership, not merely the leadership. He expects that every believer should have this quality of being spiritual. And I don't know if I may ask you, Kweko, how do you understand spiritual? Paul says, you who are spiritual. So what is he referring to? Is he referring to those who pray more than other people, those who, who know much more scripture? What does it mean to be spiritual? Because this is the first prerequisite for restoring those who, who are overtaken by sin. Okay, so I think uh, Paul is writing, uh, this is after Paul has spoken about walking in the spirit and the fruits of the spirit. So, uh, I believe Paul is alluding to those who walk in the spirit mm. um, to be able to restore people who um, have been overtaken by the works of the flesh. Yes, exactly. Those who walk in the spirit, right? And the proof that we are walking in the spirit is that the fruit of the spirit, which is the love of God, will be brilliant in our lives. It will shine. So that's what it actually means to be spiritual. It means to walk in the spirit. The proof that we walk in the spirit is that the fruit of the spirit is brilliant in our lives. It is known by all men that our love is sincere. It is unfeigned. You know, it's very interesting that the only person to whom um, correction is committed to is the one who is mature in love. Because apart from being spiritual, the thing that qualifies you for restoring another is that you do it in a spirit of gentleness, in a, in a spirit that is that has a humble and realistic appraisal of its own self. 
Paul says, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Because when people make mistakes or when they fall away, the very first um, reaction that naturally comes to us in our, in our performance-driven mindset and culture is a self-righteous um, inclination, right? We, we kind of see that, okay, this thing happened to them because of their weakness, because of their stubbornness, because of their disobedience. We, we, it's very easy for us to identify missing links in people's lives um, that could lead them down an undesirable path. And the thing is that if you bring that kind of judgmental, self-righteous spirit into correction, what you're going to do is that you're going to provoke your brother even more or your sister even more. And once that happens, you have deleted any chance of restoring the person to, to the fold. In fact, what Paul is more concerned is that any proud approach that we have towards sin is a sign that we are not looking at the problem of sin realistically enough. And that is an indication that if, if that thing comes after us, the same thing that has overtaken our brother, if it comes after us, it has the possibility to also sweep us off our feet. And so when we are dealing with delicate issues, Paul says to do it in the spirit of gentleness. This is the, this is the mark of maturity. How, how mature your love for the brethren has become. You see, it's important that Paul didn't say overlook the brother. Because we also live in a generation where people um, overly emphasize the fact that um, Christians are not supposed to judge, you know, forgetting to place a necessary balance on Jesus' statement that judge, judge not so that you will not be judged. So a lot of people, a lot of people's reactions to, to the trespasses or the sinfulness, the obvious and consistent sinfulness of others is to is to overlook it, you know, and say something like, me, I'm not God, though. <laughs> Only God knows. Only God sees the head. And that's, that's more like the easy approach, right? It's more like the cowardly approach, even. It's the easiest thing to do, which is to keep quiet. But Paul doesn't advocate for keeping quiet. He says, take a step. And that's why it takes maturity. In Ephesians, he tells us, speaking the truth in love. There are a lot of people that know how to love very well, but they keep quiet when it comes to the truth because they cannot bring those two things together. There are a lot of people that know how to speak truth <laughs> very well, but it's never received well because it is only threats and self-righteousness that emanates from the speaking of truth. The love element is missing. But the ones who are spiritual, because of their deep experience with God, because they know the mind of the spirit. This is, some, this is another thing it means to be spiritual, to know the mind of the spirit. Because they know the mind of the spirit, they know the suffering heart of Jesus for every sinner that goes astray. They are qualified to restore. And the principle is in the spirit of gentleness. So I want us to reflect, you know, think of everyone that God has placed around you. Are you seeing someone clearly and deliberately going astray and you're just quiet because you want to avoid conflict or you want to avoid confrontation. That's not the pattern of scripture. And the proof of your maturity is that you are able to bring them restoration in the spirit of gentleness. You're able to cry with them, suffer with them, pray with them, pray for them until they are restored back. This is one of the advantages of freedom because if you 
do not maintain your own freedom, then there's no chance that you can even restore somebody else, which is why Paul wants us to stand firm in our freedom. The first fruit of our freedom is that we can restore we can restore others. God can use our utterance. He can use our life. He can use our intervention to bring help to his children. God can find a reason to recover his soul just because a man or a woman decided to stand fast in her freedom. And the next fruit is verse two. It says, bear one another's burden and so fulfill the law of Christ. Like we've said before, the New Testament delivers us from the need to keep the law of Moses and all its demands, even its moral demands. God does not accept anybody on the basis of their morality. God accepts everyone on the basis of their faith. However, we said that even though you are free from the law, you are not free before Christ. You know, you are not free from the truth. It is, it is Christ who paid the price for us. So we owe him the life that we live as it were. We are, we, are, we are debtors to the, to the law of Christ because we owe our freedom to him. So even though we are free from laws and ordinances, we are not free from Christ. And it is the love of Christ that's supposed to constrain us, that is supposed to set us on the path of the will of God. And so the only law that we have been empowered to fulfill is the law of Christ. And of course, we know what the law of Christ is here in this in this context. Do you want to do you want to mention what that is quickly? Okay, the law of Christ, um, as um, Jesus gave to the disciples in the book of John, mm-hmm. that uh, as as of love, do you love one another? Exactly. By this shall all men know. That you are my disciples if yeah, you love disciples. us. And the thing, yeah, and the thing that makes it the law of Christ is that the reference point for how we are supposed to love others is how as I have loved you. You know, even though in, in the um, the way Jesus summarized the law of Moses is that the greatest two commandments there are love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your mind, with all your soul, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Love, love the Lord your God, you know, has its own references in the Old Testament, but love your neighbor as yourself did not have sufficient reference or any outstanding reference throughout the, whole, throughout the Old Testament. And Christ became that reference. It's a self-sacrificial love. It's a, it's a love that lays down his life. It's a love that pours, that pours out everything. And the question then is, what incentive do you have, right, to, to lay down your life, to bear somebody else's burden? You know, to, because everyone is supposed to be worried about their own issues, right? It's supposed to be invested in solving their own problems. It's supposed to be saving up money for their own future. What incentive then do you have to not invest all you have on yourself, but to share it, but to share it? and to not let other people bear their burdens alone. Do you want to take a stab at that quickly? Can we come again, please? I missed the last one. Yeah. The question was, what incentive do we have to bear one another's burdens, right? In the world we live in, it's a very individualistic world, right? We are supposed to look out for ourselves. We are supposed to 
um, save up for ourselves. But you see, if you're really going to bear one another's burdens, it means you're not going to have as much money as you could have, right? Because yes. you end up spending some of that money bearing burdens. It basically means don't allow people carry their burdens alone. That even though what they are going through is not really your problem, investing in a solution for them may not change your life in any way. Jesus still commands us to do that. So what's the incentive? What's, what's the incentive for doing that? Are we just doing it religiously? Or is there something that we know that enables us to do that? Because we know that Christ himself is lifting our burdens or has lifted our burdens. Exactly. Exactly. That's, that's what the freedom of the gospel is all about. That's, I think Paul mentioned something like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If, if we can um, divert there for, for a few moments. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me try to find the verse. Verse 14 and 15. It says, for the love of Christ compels us, right? It compels us, it constrains us. Because we judge that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So what you said is very true. The reason why we can live for others is that Christ has freed us from the need to live for ourselves. He has taken on him our own, our own burdens, and he continually offers himself. Peter says, casting your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Jesus says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Jesus continually offers himself to be our burden bearer. And so when we make a practice of casting our own burdens to him, knowing that our future is in his hands, the future of our marriage is in his hands, the future of our children is in his hands, when we make that our practice, it frees us up to begin to find other people around us whose burdens we can share so that we can become extensions of Christ. Right. And now it says in verse 3 to 5 that if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in him alone, in himself alone, and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. Now, this is interesting, right? On one part, he has told us that uh, we should bear one another's burdens and we shouldn't let people bear their, bear their burdens alone, right? But almost in the same breath, doing another sentence, he's telling us that at the end of the age, each one of us will bear his own load. I like that the New King James Version separates these words because there are two different words burdens and load. Some versions call them burdens, both of them, which creates some confusion. But they are two different things. But can you help us quickly? What's the difference between what verse 2 is saying about bearing one another's burdens and what verse 5 is saying that each one of us will bear his own load? Um, so um, burdens has the, have the idea of... Um, you know, Jesus said, my yoke is light. And uh, um, 
my I've, I've forgotten the exact my yoke is easy is so my burden is easy. light yes my yoke is easy and my burden is light so when we do come to Christ there's a yoke we have to bear but mm-hmm. this is a light yoke there's there's there is a work that God will work in us and out of us if we allow him to and mm-hmm. um, that is that is his yoke on us it is light because it is work that God himself Does. will do yeah so um then we have the burdens of other people these are um burdens which could come in areas of um manipulations demonic activities and um life difficulties out of um decisions or choices that we are ourselves took so um i believe the first four is 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 talking about the yoke that christ will give us the yoke that uh christ will give us the light yoke the the work that he would that will pass through the fire of his eyes mm-hmm. in the day that we meet him and one another's burden refers to the various challenges and the various difficulties that we meet or we 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 come head to head with in life yeah thank you for the explanation and just to add to that i would say that in verse 2 paul tells us to share one another's burdens right meaning that we should also share our own burdens even as we share in other people's burdens so those burdens could be material they could be emotional they could be psychological they could be spiritual whatever those burdens are they can be shared however he reminds us in verse 5 that there is one burden that we cannot share and that is our responsibility before god right like you mentioned when christ saves us he saves us privately he saves us individually even though he calls us to the nations even though he calls us to the peoples for example he he begins first by calling us to himself and we owe him a responsibility we are we are his first bride as it were because if we were the only ones on earth he would have still died if there was no if there was no work to do if there was no missions to go on right if there was no ministry um to perform if there were no problems to solve <laughs> ministerially or even naturally if there was none of this christ would still have died for us because god longs for a relationship with man he longs to come into oneness with man and so there is the burden of our personal responsibility before god that responsibility begins with how we steward our freedom right christ has made us free what we do with our freedom is up to us it's, it's, it's a choice that we make with our will and we will account we'll give account of it before god and not only our freedom but there is also our giftings the divine deposits of god right when we read the parables of the kingdom in matthew chapter 25 we see that god takes it very seriously that even the person who has one talent does something with it you know and it is actually that person who is in the greatest danger because it's possible to look at that one talent and to despise it or to look at that one talent and to begin to compare it you know with those who have more but paul says in verse 4 let each one examine, examine his own work it's very easy to become puffed up 
or become discouraged when the reference point for our lives is somebody else. You know, it's very easy for us to begin to think that we are something because we are not comparing everything to the divine reference. We are comparing it to human references. We are looking at Mr. X, Minister Y. We're looking at perhaps their results um, or their lifestyle. And we're using it as a gauge for our work with God. That is a sure way to miss out on the will of God for our lives. But it is private, it is personal. Paul says everyone must examine his work. I must know what God has called me to do. What, I must know where he has planted me, the divine purpose he has for me. I must know why I'm having so much results or, or why I'm having zero results in the physical. Um, somebody else's story of success can inspire me, can motivate me. By the end of the day, my work is before God and before God alone. My sincerity is first to him. He is my first audience. And I, I ought to live my life with the mindset that I'm going to give account to him at the end of the day. Okay? So we can go to verse 6 to verse 10. Now, Okay. Yes, verse 6 to verse 10. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap life everlasting, everlasting life. And let us not grow weary in well-doing or while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially those who are of the household of faith. Amen. Okay, thank you. Okay, so in verse 6, Paul says that let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches, right? Um, so this is a practical indication of how to share burdens. And Paul says that the thing with sharing burdens and living a life that is poured out is that God is not mocked for whatever a man sows that he will reap. You see, the scripture here doesn't say wherever a man sows, because this is what happens to us usually that we feel, okay, I've been laboring on this field or laboring on this person's life or laboring in this particular context. So therefore, my reward should come from this place. That's not what God is concerned about. God is concerned about what it is that you're sowing. And he's saying that God cannot be mocked. And this is a, an important principle to remember that God cannot be mocked. He cannot be mocked in my life. He cannot be mocked in the church. Because many times we can look back on some of our labors and say, it doesn't look like I've received any reward for my labor, right? It doesn't look like um, all the prayers, all the, all the study, all the even fasting, all the evangelism, all the care and love. It doesn't look like it's heading in any direction. I cannot count how many souls have come to Christ on, a, on account of my labors. I cannot, you know, put numbers to the effort I've put in. 
You see, that kind of thinking is actually suggesting that God can be mocked. But Paul says that God is not mocked. It means that the one who continues to invest in the things of God, it is inevitable that in due season he is going to reap. So this is the first thing that Paul highlights about the character of God in dealing with us, that he cannot be mocked. And that's what then leads us to verse 8, that he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. This brings us back to the topic of freedom. The good thing with scripture is that scripture shows you the outcome of things before you indulge in them so that whatever choice you choose to make, you can be informed ahead of time, you know, about the consequences and all the potential outcome of that choice. And so he says that if you sow to your flesh, meaning if you sow to your sinful nature, if you decide that you want to use your freedom instead of using your freedom to bear burdens and to serve and to continue and to walk in the spirit and to continue on the path that God has drawn for you, if you decide to invest it in meaningless activity or even in sinful activity, it will gratify you initially. You have the freedom to even do that, like Paul has established in chapter five. But what is going to happen is that you're going to reap corruption. And the reason you're going to reap corruption is that you are relating with a creation that is fallen, according to scripture, a creation that is in bondage, that has been placed on the bondage of corruption. The purposes of this creation have been concluded in times and seasons, right? It has been concluded in vanity. That's what the writer of Ecclesiastes found, that there is, no, there is nothing in this creation that you pursue that has life at the end of it. It has cycles of vanity, meaning that it draws you deeper, but the, more, but the deeper you go into something, the less meaning you find in it. That's what corruption is. It leads to a sense of emptiness, a sense of frustration, a sense of depression, because we have invested in the wrong things. You know? But the alternative, the place to sow is in the spirit. And it says that what we will reap from the spirit is life everlasting. That's what God always offers us. I know that when we come to God, we have practical problems. For example, a practical problem will be, I need 5,000 CDs in my account. <laughs> and a practical solution to that problem looks like 5,000 CDs entering my account and solving my problem. But what God wants to give us is life. Because when life begins to well up inside of us, it is that life that will produce that will produce the results that we need to meet all our needs so that we will even go beyond the place where 5,000 cities becomes a problem, where 5,000 cities is a problem rather. What God wants to give us is life. Every time you feel dry, every time you feel pressed in and hedged in, look for life, look for life, look for the signs of life within. Remember that this is the promise of Abraham or this is the blessing of Abraham, the promise of the spirit that I will pour water upon the testy soul in the midst of your dryness, in the midst of anything that confronts you, you can cry out to the spirit of God. And the proof that your prayer is answered, the proof that your request is granted, the proof that your labor is productive is that there'll be a surge of life. That life will produce wisdom, it will produce redemption, it will produce even material things on the outside. And so, because God cannot be mocked in verse 9, Paul tells us the second thing that anyone who so has to know about God. 
It says, let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season, we shall reap if we do not lose heart. So apart from the fact that God cannot be mocked, we see also that God is a God of seasons. God, com God concludes and prepares and plans his purposes in times and seasons. There are two words for time in the Greek. There is a chronos, which refers to the chronological time, which refers to the normal uh, movement of time in history. And then there's a kairos time. There is the opportune moment. And sometimes God will have you invest and sow up until the opportune time. So you might, you might ask yourself, oh, why are certain things not happening in my life? It could well be that is not yet the due season. And the counsel of Jesus through Paul is, do not grow weary. And do not grow weary. Because if you do not lose heart, there will surely be a reward when the season comes. It's my prayer that God will make us sensitive to our seasons, our seasons of opportunity in the spirit, the times when windows are open in heaven. And God will help us to discern, to understand that those windows will not be open forever and to step into them by faith and to take advantage of the opportunities that they present us, that we will not miss our seasons and that we will not lose heart before our seasons are due. In Luke 18, when Jesus gave the parable of the importunate widow, he said, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And my question, Kweku, maybe you can help us, is how is it that we will not grow weary? What is it that we can know or do to ensure that we don't miss, we don't grow weary and miss our due season? What is it that keeps us on the burner, that keeps us on the cutting edge, and that ensures that we do not grow weary? Um. Okay, two things. Okay. Um, okay, so the verse 10, Paul, Paul says something in the verse 10 um, that to those who are of the household of faith, which means the person who is sowing is also sowing, um, comes from the household of faith and should be sowing in faith. Um, so um, I would say um, sowing in faith, faith will be one. Then mm -hmm. number two, um, the second thing will be, <clears throat> um, you know, um, because we are sowing to the spirit, mm -hmm. um, it is, it is, it is, um, I don't know how to describe it. The, 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 um, once we, 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 we are sowing in the spirit, mm -hmm. we are, we are coming from the position of walking in the spirit. So mm -hmm. it is, it is, it is that walk. And that, that continuous walk in the spirit and that continuous guidance of the spirit, that continuous um, reliance on the spirit, mm -hmm. that, will, that will keep us. Because um, as a natural human being, um, you, you are most likely to lose hope. It is, mm -hmm. it is only natural for you to lose hope. Yeah. 
Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. It is only natural. It is the natural consequence of the fall of Adam. But with the spirit, as you walk in the spirit, you, you begin to press and pursue more and more for things which are not seen and they would manifest in due season. Yeah, in due season. Thank you very much. Those are the two principles that you've pointed out, faith and the spirit. You know, Hebrews tells us that faith comes by hearing, right? And yes. hearing by, by the word, or not Hebrews, Romans chapter... Romans chapter, is it 10? Yeah. Chapter 10 tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, meaning that the quality of your faith would be determined by the quality of your hope, which your hope stems from what you're hearing, right? And hope is such an important element in, in establishing faith, which we're going to see in our next book, which is Colossians. Um, hope is a very important element in establishing faith. Paul wants you to have the right hope. If your hope is, is in the right place, you'll be able to withstand a seeming season of barrenness. And that's why he's, he's bringing to the surface these qualities about God. He's telling you that I want you to register, I want you to register in your heart that God cannot be mocked. I want it to be settled in your heart that God cannot be mocked. If you know for a certainty that you're dealing with a God that cannot be mocked, even when situations do not turn out the way you expected, you pick yourself up and you continue. The Bible says that by faith, Sarah received strength, you know, <laughs> to bring forth child at an old age. The reason for that strength she got is because she judged him faithful. She judged him faithful who had promised. As simple as that reason is, it was sufficient for a woman to receive strength to do what she could ordinarily not do. But the second factor you mentioned, it is, which is the spirit, is probably the most important. Because like we said, there are times when your soul will be dry of even the hope that you know. Nothing in your head will come back to your head you know, to protect you from the fiery darts of the enemy. In that moment, the promise of, of God is, I will pour water on the testy soul. If you can cry out for water, the spirit of God will water your soul. Um, the psalmist talks of the blessed man in Psalm chapter 1, right? He's like a tree planted by the rivers of water. He brings forth his fruit in due season. He's not aware when there's fruit because he is by the waters, by the waters. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are. If you stay by the waters, your hope will continually be renewed. And if you have the right hope, again, this, this topic of hope is very important because sometimes we come to God with the wrong hope. You know, we maybe think that God is a money doubler, that we gave one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that we gave 1,000 CDs and he ought to give us 1,000 CDs by now. Or we just think that God owes us something. That's not the right hope. That's not a Christian hope. The fact that you paid your tithe doesn't mean that God, <laughs> doesn't mean that God is indebted to you. That kind of hope cannot materialize. Anyone whose foundation is based on that kind of hope is going to lose heart at some point. But the Bible says that Christ in you is the hope of glory. And that there, there, are, there are levels of glory that Christ in you can, can still produce in your life. And that hope should keep you sowing in the spirit. Should keep you laboring. In verse 10, Paul says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all. I think 
Another translation um, ex extends it by saying to all men, the old King James, all men. And of course, men refers to men and women, especially to those of the household of faith, right? So, so Paul says that one way, one other way to use our freedom is to do good to all men. One, one other way is to use the, the chronos season, the sowing season is to do good to all men. The reason it's important to do good to all men is that it is through the good you do to all men that God hopes to reach all men. You know, like we're going to see when we study um, the book of First Thessalonians, you'll find out that the gospel is not something we preach, first of all. God is not so concerned that we don't have too many opportunities to preach the gospel. The gospel is what we put on display first. The gospel is first experienced before it is explained. So the people around us ex experience the gospel. And, and then by the mercy of God, he gives us the opportunity to explain to them what we experience. That is always the pattern. Yeah. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is it's not the logic of Christ. It is the power of God. It takes power to do good. Because there will be opposition. The people that you are doing good to may not appreciate the good but it takes power. And if that power is found in you, it's only a matter of time before they will, they will come to you like the queen of Sheba came to Solomon and say, what wisdom is this? What, what wisdom is this? What, what unction is this by which you operate? It's important that we have a posture of doing good to all. And this brings us back to something we, we talked about in Romans, which is that God's desire is for, for each of us is that we will live on the altar. <laughs> For you to do good to all, you have to live on the altar. Because like I said earlier, you're not going to have as much money as you could have had because you will distribute some of it to meet the good of all. And then he places an emphasis even more so on those who, are the, who have the household of faith. I decided to focus on all first because sometimes when we read the scripture, we quickly jump to the household of faith and we stay in our circles. And we think that the gospel is all about when we preach to sinners or to non-believers. But it begins with the good that we allow God to work out through us. And it's my prayer that we will indeed put our lives on the altar, that this is what we'll do with our freedom. You know, the thing with freedom in Christ is that you are free to, to become anything. You can become a rebel with your freedom, right? But you can also become a son with your freedom. You can decide to, to, to feast and and to feast on fat things with your freedom. You can decide to fast and wait on God for the deliverance of a nation with your freedom. Like <laughs> so much responsibility has been committed to you because of that freedom. And it's a process, let us do good to all. And it's my prayer that our lives will be, will be like poured out wine, broken bread for the nations. That in our workplaces, in our families, we will not hold anything back, especially when God is nudging us and prompting us to to let go of it. And then that leads us to verse 11 to 15. Okay. 11 to 15. See, with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand, as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these will compel you to be circumcised only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Jesus. For even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they 
For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision availeth anything but a new creation. Amen. Yeah, thank you. So do you see the point that Paul was trying to make throughout Romans, that he's been trying to make throughout this book as well about those who try to be justified by keeping the law? In verse 13, he says, not even those who are circumcised keep the law. And of course, Paul knows the first, first time because yeah. he was at the very top of the ladder in this religious system. And he knows that the pass mark, like we've always said, for the law is 100%. You know, you, you cannot keep 99% and say, oh, I failed in one, so I'm good. If you failed in one, you failed in all. Because like you said, it's a necklace. If you cut it on one part, everything comes apart, right? Um, um, the law is interwoven together like that. It's so interdependent. One mistake, one misstep that you do can ruin the life of another person as small and as simple and as innocent as it might be. The consequences are potentially serious, right? Eve ate a fruit and the whole world came under bondage. So even though, so she doesn't have the luxury of isolating her problem to herself, right? Of isolating her weakness to herself, of isolating her mistake to herself. And that's how interconnected all of creation is. And it says the people who are circumcised, to show you how fruitless circumcision is, circumcision does not help them in keeping the law. The only reason they want you to be circumcised is because they want to boast. They want to have external results. And that's why it says in verse 15 that in Christ, whether you are circumcised or not circumcised, it doesn't avail anything. The only thing that avails is that working of God that we have always spoke, spoken about in our study. That sovereign activity of God inside of you, that mystery of the gospel that Paul speaks of in Ephesians chapter 3 and he speaks of in Colossians chapter 1. God at work in you, prompting you, stirring you, constraining you, enlarging you. That's the thing that makes the difference. That's, that's the reality to pay attention to. Everything else, everything else will not suffice. And in verse 12, it says, as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, they will compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. So it's, it's, it's important for us to see that there is persecution in the cross of Christ. And I think in our 21st century preaching, this is something that is not often um, expressly mentioned as often as it should be there is some kind of suffering that comes with picking up the cross of christ and a lot of it is is not even external externally influenced suffering right it's the kind of suffering that we that we bring upon ourselves because here paul makes a contrast between those who want you to be circumcised right and then those who are preaching the cross of christ and he's saying that the people on the left who wanted to be circumcised are taking the easy way out, <laughs> right? Because they know that when they come to the right, which is preaching the message of the cross of Christ, it's going to trigger some kind of persecution. And the question is, what kind of persecution and why does it trigger persecution? Because if you have looked at this letter the whole time, you'll see that Paul is basically dealing with 
two, two kinds of extremes, right? The first kind of extreme is the extreme of the moralist, the one who believes that by their good works, they can be justified before God. When you present the cross of Christ to that kind of person, it's an offense to them. It's an offense to their sense of masculinity, you know, to their sense of performance, because you're saying to them that, that the love of God is what prevails, not your goodness. That you are what you are by the grace of God, not by your goodness. Your goodness was not a determining factor. It was only something that came along the line. Your salvation was not by yourself. You know, in America today, for example, a lot of people have, um, a lot of liberals, or even, yeah, liberals have formed what we call, um, they've described the message of the gospel as what we call, um, kind. it's, I think the word is savior, savior um, complex or savior mindset. Basically, their belief is that we don't need a savior. Christianity has brainwashed us into believing that we are so terrible that we need a savior. But look at the civilization we built with our own hands. You know, we don't need a savior. But friends, as good as any of us is, we still need a savior. And that's why the message of the cross is offensive to the legalist. It's offensive to the moralist. But you see, the message of the cross is also offensive to the liberal, right? To the one that feels that <laughs> there are no clear dividing lines in life, that we are free to do whatever it is that we want, as long as it feels good to us. The reason the cross is offensive to that category of people is that it reminds them of the justice of God. On the one hand, the cross reminds the moralist of the love of God. On the other hand, it reminds the lascivious, the licentious, it reminds the lawless of the justice of God, that if God killed his son because of sin, we are going to answer before him one day. So you can see why anyone who decides to stand with the cross is not really going to appeal to any of these two extremes. And in Paul's time, in fact, it's go it was going to trigger direct persecution. And even today, you can say that if you stand and proclaim the, the cross of Christ, right, that there are consequences for sins that the Bible condemns, you know, it's very easily categorized as hate speech, right? You can very easily get yourself canceled on social media, as it were. Um, it's very easily categorized as intolerance. There is some kind of persecution that comes with standing with the gospel of Christ. And anyone who believes this gospel, especially in the last days, must remember that there is offense in it. And that offense is supposed to keep us grounded and it's supposed to remind us that it took God so much to bring salvation. It's supposed to make us appreciate the depth of the salvation that God has given to us. And it's supposed to give us a sense of urgency you know, as we seek to also present the same good news to other people. Does it make sense, Kweku? Do you want to add something to this section? Um, no, I think you said everything. Okay. So we can now close the letter with verse 16 to 18. 16 to 18. And as, and as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. For now, from now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, your spirit. Amen. Amen. 
So um, Galatians is a bit infamous amongst um, theologians. A lot of them do not really like this book because um, the language is a little brash. It, it ends a bit abruptly on an intense note, right? As you can see, it doesn't end with all those pleasantries that most of Paul's letters end with greeting people in the churches, but <laughs> Paul delivers the message of the cross and says that <laughs> um, the only people upon whom peace and mercy will rest are those who walk according to this rule and upon the Israel of God. And then he just closes the letter with, with what many might even describe as a sarcastic statement in verse 17. But let's take it slowly. Verse 16 says, as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. What rule is he referring to? He's referring to the rule in verse 15, right? That in Christ, which we have seen earlier, circumcision or uncircumcision, there's nothing external that avails anything. The only thing that avails something is a new creation. And this new creation is the working of God within, the mystery of the indwelling of the spirit of God, that deposit of the anointing of the spirit, of the presence of the spirit that God smuggled into our hearts when we received him into our hearts. That if we walk according to the promptings of that spirit, if we walk according to, according to the leadings of that spirit, that peace and mercy will be upon us. You see, peace and mercy are not, are not the real thing. They are only the product of having the real thing. Because a lot of people elevate peace and say, oh, I have peace about what I'm doing. You know, so um, whatever it is you're saying does not apply to me. But peace and mercy are not the goal. They are not the reality. They are only the proof that the reality is there. And the reality is the inner working of God. And everyone in whom God works like this is referred to as the Israel of God. And of course, what Paul is doing here is that he is trying to... Um, again, make it clear that the covenants that God had with a physical nation in the Old Testament have been transferred to a spiritual nation in the New Testament. And so everything that God spoke to Abraham, the promises that God gives Abraham, have to be interpreted in the context of that spiritual Israel, of that Israel of God. And then it says, from now on, let no one trouble me, <laughs> for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. So this is a play on words, you know. The main issue Paul is tackling in Galatia is circumcision, which is a physical mark, <laughs> right? That you belong, yeah. you belong to Christ. And Paul is, is saying that just in case, I've, I've written this letter and I've told you that those, that physical mark is useless. You don't need it in Christ, that mark of circumcision. But just in case you're looking for a mark, I have marks. <laughs> And of course, we know the marks he's speaking of here, right? It is the marks of the, of, the, of the lashings that he received for the sake of the gospel. Isn't it interesting that, that the marks of the gospel that Paul has are not how much money he was able to accu accumulate because of the gospel? Do you realize that in our day and time, that is part of our own metrics, or even that is to an extent at the center of our own metrics, right? It is um, the crowd that we have been able to gather, the buildings that we have developed in the name of Christ and all of these things. But in Paul's time, the marks of the Lord Jesus that he had were the things he endured 
for the sake of his conviction. The things he endured for the sake of the love of Christ that was locked up in his heart. And it's my prayer that the love of God will be locked up in our hearts, friends. I'm convinced that God has a great plan for each of us, that there's so much beauty and progress and influence and capacity that lies ahead of us. God wants to do so much in, in us. But there's also so much persecution along the way. There's also so much difficulty along the way. It's not always going to be the case that, um, that as soon as we do the will of God, we instantly see change. There's, there's need for a lot of endurance. There's need for a lot of patience, especially if we go back to how we started. If there is practically someone in your life that you're trusting God for transformation in their lives, that person may persecute you. That person might be slow to respond to your good works. It's not going to be the case that you're going to go away from Galatians chapter 6 and do what is written here, and then the next day everything changes. But what's supposed to keep you grounded is the love of God that is locked up in your heart. That sovereign activity of God, that sovereign and divine planting of God that keeps you on your feet, that, that sustains you in the midst of all the contradictions. And it's my prayer that each of us will be sensitive to that love, will be alive to that love, and will be driven by that love, and that, and that we will not grow weary in doing good, that we will not miss out on our due seasons, but that we will persevere until the light of God breaks out in our spirits, breaks out full in our families, and breaks out in our territories. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.